Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Dog Pod, where we discuss all things related to canine health, research, how Good Dog helps breeders run their breeding programs, and so much more. I'm Nicole, the breeder community lead here at Good Dog and your host for this week's episode. But first of all, before we kick things off for this week, I want to just wish everyone a very happy new year. I think by the time this episode airs, we'll be about midway through January. So maybe it is a little late to be wishing everyone a happy new year, but I couldn't waste or miss the opportunity. We have so many exciting things coming up at Good Dog in 2024. And we're so excited to be back on this podcast after our little holiday break and start talking about all of them. But before we start sharing any of those really exciting Good Dog things, we want to kick off the year with everyone's favorite topic, which is taxes. So it might not actually be everyone's favorite thing to talk about, but I know as a dog breeder, you might have a lot of questions about taxes and how they apply to you. And that's why for today's episode, we're bringing on a certified public accountant, Jeremiah's from accounting firm Witham, to talk all about tax best practices, how to approach common tax situations and more. And of course, all of this is through the unique lens of a dog breeder and all of those needs that are a little bit different than anybody else's. So we hope this will be a helpful resource for you as tax season begins. And as a friendly reminder, this podcast is for general information purposes only, and we cannot speak to or give advice on individual tax questions. And we always recommend working directly with a certified accountant for those. So with that, I will pass things off to Jeremiah to kick off this episode. Thanks for the introduction. So my name is Jeremiah Ramos. I'm a CPA at Witham Smith & Brown. We're a national tax firm. We have offices in California, Colorado, pretty much all over the East Coast. So if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. But for today's topics, what you came here to learn more about, general tax reporting requirements, we're going to discuss you know, how to file your taxes, what's the best route, especially it's tax season, you have to file your return by April or request an extension. So definitely want to go through some of those hot topics. We're going to talk about the difference between a trade or business versus a hobby. This is especially important if you're looking to deduct those expenses. Then we're going to discuss the differences between an employee or an independent contractor for any of those who, let's say you're thinking of hiring some staff, or if you're working for someone, what's the difference between that distinction for federal income tax purposes? Then we're going to discuss entity selection. Do you need to make an LLC? Should you create an S corporation or can you do business on your own without having an entity? Then we're going to discuss 1099s. This is especially important topic with some recent IRS guidance coming out on 1099s, especially with reporting income on those 1099s. Then we'll be talking about some business deductions. So for example, the home office deduction, some usual tax deductions that you can take during the year. We'll talk about business use of vehicle, how to expense those deductions, whether you're deducting gas or mileage, we're going to be covering those in this topic as well. And then lastly, some helpful tips to protect you in the case of an IRS audit, especially for small business owners. 
everyone's fearful for that 87,000 or 86,000 new IRS agents that are purportedly to come within the next couple of years. The fear is that some of these IRS agents are going to target some of the smaller business owners, especially those who might not have CPAs, might not be as tax savvy, and it would be harder to defend themselves against an IRS audit. So I'll give you some helpful tips to protect yourself from an IRS audit and to make sure that you're claiming all the deductions that you can possibly take while at the same time protecting yourself from the IRS. So in general, one of the biggest questions that I get, especially for small business owners, is what is includable in taxable income? So generally, gross income, when it comes to the federal income tax code, it means all income from whatever source derived. So generally, all income is considered taxable income unless there's a specific exemption. So for example, if you buy some municipal bonds, generally the interests associated with those bonds are tax exempt. But generally, all other income items, if you sell something, if you do services for someone, any amounts that you receive, whether it's reported to you on the 1099 or someone gave you cash, all of that would be reportable income on your Form 1040. Generally speaking, when you run a business, there's a confusion in how to report that information on your tax return. But generally, for most individuals who work nine to five, they get a W-2. They're used to just taking the W-2, going on to TurboTax, plugging that information and getting their 1040 filled out. For small business owners, especially, for the most part, you'll be considered what's called a sole proprietor. You'll report all of your information on Schedule C. That's also on your 1040. It's just more itemized out. You're going to record your income items, your expenses. But it's definitely helpful, especially if you go through a tax advisor or CPA, and they can help you with filing those forms. If you're more advanced and you have a larger business, let's say you're getting more established, or if you have several different individuals that you're working with to establish a larger business, oftentimes you'll set up an entity structure such as an S-Corp or a partnership. That could be an entire different webinar in and of itself. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're just going to stick to our Schedule C, our small filers, those who don't have an entity classification, maybe you're just doing business on your own, under your own name, or a DBA. Generally speaking, all of that's going to be reported on your 1040, the same 1040 you file every year. There's just additional schedules associated with the classification of that income. In terms of 1099s, there's a couple different 1099s that you might see. There's 1099s you might receive if you're working from someone as an independent contractor, or maybe you're receiving some other forms of income. But generally, the 1099 that most of you are receiving is going to be this 1099K. This is going to be any payments that you receive from a third party, or if you're taking credit card receipts, oftentimes you'll get a 1099K. This is for informational purposes only. This does not determine your total taxable income for the year. You could have, like I mentioned before, transactions that you're doing in cash. You might have transactions that you're doing through Venmo or through other third-party networks. You might have transactions, as Nicole mentioned before, through GoodDog. You might have other forms of even, let's say, bartering transactions. All of those have to be accounted for on your tax return. So it's not an issue of which 1099s that I receive. And if I received one, then it's going to be considered taxable. The purpose of that 1099K is to make sure that anything that's reported through a third-party network or through a credit card company, that those are going to be reported to the IRS. And oftentimes under audit, they match that up with your return. So for example, if you file that Schedule C on your 1040, 
you're showing $100,000 worth of gross receipts, but you received the 1099K for 150,000 of receipts, it's going to raise a red flag to the IRS. Those numbers are not going to match and they're going to probably pursue an audit. In those cases, they're going to ask, why is there a difference between the 1099K received? And oftentimes it might be you underreported income, or there could be a timing difference if let's say you're accrual versus cash basis taxpayer. But generally speaking, these are mostly just informational. You want to make sure that you're keeping proper books and records to make sure that you're counting for all sources of income and not just the ones that are reported on this 1099K. The big news coming from the IRS when it comes to the 1099K is that new reporting requirement. I know it was pretty scary for a lot of taxpayers who use third-party apps such as Venmo or maybe PayPal that there was going to be new reporting requirements. Those new rules were that any gross payments for goods or services that exceeded $600, regardless of the number of transactions, were going to be issued a 1099K. That means a lot of taxpayers that normally wouldn't have received that form were now going to start receiving those forms. And maybe some taxpayers that generally did not report some of that income, maybe because they were taking some funds through Venmo or PayPal or other sources, it wasn't being reported to the IRS, and then they assumed that it wasn't taxable, or they just wanted to kind of get one over on the IRS, not report that income. Fortunately, for most taxpayers, that rule is going to be deferred. So the old existing rules before 2022 are still going to be in effect. So generally, gross payments that exceed $20,000 for the year, and if you receive more than 200 transactions for the year, generally, you're going to receive a 1099K. So you have to be doing some significant amount of transactions in order to get 200 transactions, about $20,000 of gross proceeds from those third-party networks in order to get that 1099K. But just as a reiteration, remember, just because you did not receive a 1099K doesn't mean you have taxable income. And just because you received, let's say, for example, one or several 1099Ks, some of them might be included, some of them might not be. Remember, you always have to look at your books and records. You have to see what money actually came in and pay taxes on those amounts. This often is just a reporting requirement. They have to send it to you just to meet those IRS requirements. But generally speaking, this is not determinant of what your total income is for the year. And as I mentioned before, the IRS update is going to defer that new reporting requirement. We're still under the old rules, but we don't know when those new rules are going to take place. It could be next year. It could be five years from now. So it's hard to tell if these new requirements, that new lower $600 threshold is actually going to go into place next year or the following year. But for now, the rules are still that $20,000 threshold with 200 transactions for the taxable year. And as I mentioned before, if you don't receive that 1099K, is the income taxable? So yes, as I mentioned before, all forms of receipts are going to be considered taxable income, whether you receive cash, Venmo, credit cards, or even if you have barter transactions, let's say you're exchanging property for other forms of property, oftentimes those are going to be considered taxable transactions. But for the most part, anything you receive cash or through other third-party apps you have to aggregate those numbers or those amounts together and report that on your Schedule C. Do you need to file 1099s? So this is a frequent question, especially during tax season. You often receive a lot of 1099s if you're an independent contractor or you work for yourself, you're self-employed. But a question that comes up often is, do you yourself have to file those 1099s? 
So the answer is maybe. If you do have independent contractors working for you, or if you're paying for any professional services, let's say you have an accountant or a lawyer, oftentimes you'll have to file 1099s and report that amount that you paid to them to those providers or those independent contractors. Often it's easy. There's a lot of websites that will walk you through that process. Local CPAs oftentimes provide this service for a nominal fee just to file those 1099s, issue those. It's a reporting requirement. There is a penalty for each 1099 that's not filed. So in the case of an IRS audit, oftentimes this is an easy thing they'll ask. They'll say, did you file any 1099s during the year? If the answer is no, they'll look through your books and say, here are five people that you should have sent 1099s to, but you didn't. Therefore, you might have some exposure there. But generally speaking, if you're a solo entrepreneur, you're just working for yourself, you don't work with any independent contractors, and you don't pay for any professional services, oftentimes you probably don't have to file these 1099s. Another important distinction is the difference between an independent contractor versus an employee. If you're a small business owner who's thinking of maybe hiring some employees or some hired help, there is a difference between what's considered someone who's an independent contractor or someone who's an employee. An employee, it gets a little messy just because there's more reporting requirements. Oftentimes, the hesitation to hire an employee is because now you have to hire a payroll company, you have to issue W-2s, you have to file different tax forms throughout the year. It gets really messy compared to a 1099. You could just pay them for their services, give them cash or write them a check, and they're on their way. There's no additional reporting requirements except for writing off those expenses on your return. But generally speaking, the difference between an employee and independent contractor is important, especially if you're considering hiring employees in the future, just because this could have a significant exposure in the future. So just some things to think about when you're hiring employees. An employee generally is someone that you control. You control their hours. You provide them the tools and supplies necessary to do their job. They can generally not work for any other companies besides your company they're going to be considered an employee in the eyes of the IRS. This means that you have withholding requirements that you have to pay to the IRS. You have to pay uh, employer-paid taxes, including Social Security, Medicare. It gets pretty messy. Whenever you're dealing with an independent contractor, generally, they set their own hours. They provide their own tools. They work for many different clients. Those are going to be considered those independent contractors. A good example is, let's say you hire someone to mow your lawn. Generally, you're not providing your gas or your lawnmower for them to do the services. You're not telling them to come at a specific time. You hire them, you pay them, they come, show up, do the job, and they leave. Those are considered independent contractors versus if you hire someone to work in your business, they have to wear a uniform, they have to wear a specific shirt. Let's say, for example, with the company logo, they have set hours, nine to five. Those are going to be considered your employees. But for most people who are just solo entrepreneurs, they just have a sole business. It's maybe them and their spouse or their kids doing most of the work. You don't have to worry about payroll for now, but it is a consideration in the future. Another big question that we see is, do you need to have an LLC in order to have a business? Uh, so the question is to LLC or not to LLC. Do I need an LLC? Is a lot of questions that I see from clients, especially if you're starting out. It's oftentimes confusing. You might see it, especially on TikTok and Instagram, You know, set up your LLC so you can deduct expenses. Generally speaking, an LLC is not needed to operate a business. So anyone can run a business. 
You could go out right now and set up a lemonade stand and sell lemonade. You'll take in the income. And if it's your trader business, oftentimes you'll be able to take those deductions. Those businesses that don't have an LLC, they're going to often be deemed a sole proprietorship. So as I mentioned before, you just have to report on your Schedule C. This is on your 1040. It's the same tax return that you file year after year. Now, the main advantage of an LLC oftentimes is that you mitigate liability. It offers general liability in terms of protection of your personal assets. So let's say, for example, I set up an LLC. I have my business within that LLC. If anything were to happen to the business, let's say there's an injury on my property or a customer sues me, you'll be limited by the amount of the assets within that LLC and they can't come after your personal assets. However, a lot of times lawyers are pretty sophisticated, business owners, not so much in terms of legal terms. Oftentimes they'll get past that LLC and they'll be able to come after your personal assets. So what I always recommend clients is that if you don't have general liability insurance, to definitely get it. It protects you more than having an LLC. So if you're thinking about getting an LLC, always helpful to get one. But oftentimes you want to couple that with some general liability insurance, especially in certain industries. If there is any risk of injury or any possibility that you might get sued, you want that protection. So some reasons to create an LLC, as I mentioned before, you have that limited liability. It does not limit liability in all cases, as I mentioned. So in certain situations where you're considered negligible or you're committing crimes, the LLC is non-existent in a sense, or in cases where you're commingling funds, you're using a bank account for business purposes and personal purposes, oftentimes that will not protect those assets within that bank account because the IRS or lawyers in general, they're going to get right through that and say, he's commingling his funds. There's no really business operations. If he's mixing his personal life with his business life, then everything's on the table. We could go after those personal assets. Another reason to create an LLC is that it's pretty inexpensive. There's a lot of websites now that you go on, create an LLC. You could go to any local lawyer or CPA. They can help you set up those LLCs for a nominal fee. And you have that LLC pretty much as long as you're maintaining those annual fees. It also legitimizes your business in the future. So if you wanted to convert that LLC to, let's say, a partnership or S corporation, let's say you wanted to sell that business down the road. It looks more legitimate that you have an LLC, that you set up a business structure. Also, whenever you're working with banks or you want to get a business credit, it looks better that you have an LLC, you have an EIN, that you can set up an account in that LLC's name. It doesn't mean that you have to. There's oftentimes you could set up a business account. You don't need a business LLC in order to do that. But in certain cases, it just legitimizes your business a little more. Some reasons to avoid the LLC. There are some additional costs to set up and maintain that LLC, especially in certain states. So for example, if you're in California, there is a minimum fee to maintain an LLC, which is about $800 a year. Other states, it's cheaper or it's free. A lot of states, they have a minimum of about $20, $25. Generally, it goes based off of your gross receipts. So as your gross receipts increase, that minimum LLC fee is going to increase every year. So that is a thought process, but generally as your business gets bigger, you have more money, you're able to pay for some of these expenses, especially when you have a larger business, it's more established. You want to have that LLC to legitimize that business. Also, if you're not doing much work, it might not be 
reasonable to get an LLC just because you might not know if you're looking to continue in this business long-term. You might just want to dabble in it, see how it goes. It might just be a side hustle for you. You really don't want to sell an LLC. It's more of a hobby instead of an actual business. These are some other reasons to avoid going forward with an LLC. Next up, we'll discuss what an S-Corp is. So generally, we're not going to go too much into detail into what an S-Corp is. This is for those business owners that are more established. They have a couple of years of experience. They're starting to make a significant amount of income. Generally, we recommend business owners, if you're starting to net profit about $100,000, $200,000 a year, you might want to consider switching over to an S-Corp. Some functions of that is that it limits your FICA taxes. You can have some savings there. There's also what's called a qualified business income deduction. There's some QBI planning with regards to setting up S-Corps. And then also it's used more by established businesses. So you avoid situations where the IRS is going to audit more of your Schedule Cs versus S-Corps. They assume they're established business. They have books and records. Oftentimes, the IRS won't go after S-Corps as much as they go after small Schedule Cs. Next up is an important topic, especially for anyone who's looking to take deductions on their Schedule C. It's the distinction between what's a trader business versus what's a hobby. So generally speaking, if you have a trader business, you can deduct those expenses. If you have a hobby, oftentimes you won't be able to deduct your expenses. The main question is what determines what a trader business is and what determines what a hobby is. The IRS stipulates that a business is an activity that is carried out in a business-like manner. That's pretty broad, but generally, if you have certain criteria going your way, so for example, you have an LLC, business bank account, you have a company website, you have a company logo. If you're doing all those activities where it looks like a business, talks like a business, it's probably a business. Also, there has to be that intent to make a profit. So you have to actually try to make money in this endeavor. If you're doing something just because you enjoy it, let's say you enjoy skiing, you spend a significant amount of money in skiing, you go travel all over the world and maybe enter in some competitions. But the majority reason why you're doing those activities is not to make a profit, it's just because you enjoy it. Now, as a small business owner, you might enjoy what you're doing, you might enjoy the field that you're in, but oftentimes you're in it to make that profit, to provide for your family, to live that comfortable lifestyle. So you always have to have that intent to make a profit. Oftentimes they'll look at what you do on a daily basis. So if you're a W-2 employee, your nine to five is doing whatever job you might have. You might be an accountant, a lawyer, doctor. And if you have a small thing that you do on the side, oftentimes the IRS will say, you don't really have a profit motive with this is more of a side thing that you do. Also, a question that they often ask is, does the business actually make a profit? So it's not that you have an intent to make a profit, but they actually look at, are you making a profit year over year? Are you just taking deductions? So an activity is presumed carried on a profit if it produces a profit for at least three out of the last five tax years. So this is important, especially if you have a Schedule C, the IRS will often audit those Schedule Cs that have losses year over year. This is a huge red flag, especially if you're just deducting losses year over year, you're taking a lot of expenses. There seems like there's not real profit motive within that specific business. So anything that is at least three out of five years where you're making profit, the IRS will assume that 
that Schedule C is a legitimate Schedule C, you're earning money, you're taking deductions, they might audit those deductions. But generally speaking, you'll be safer than someone who's just taking losses year over year. Another key point is that if you have two years consecutively or more of losses, that's when things start to get a little suspicious in the IRS's mind. And they often say that those businesses probably don't have a profit motive. They're not in the business of making a profit. You're just there to take losses on your tax return. And it's more of like a hobby than it is a business. So why does it matter? Why does it matter if you have a trader business or a hobby? The main distinction is that between 2018 to 2025, there was what was called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or the TCJA that did away with those hobby expenses for 2018 to 2025. So generally speaking, if you do have a hobby, you can only deduct those expenses as itemized deductions before 2018 or after 2025, meaning that if you made $10,000 for the year in your hobby, you can't offset any expenses. So you could be a dog breeder as a hobby. If the IRS says it's a hobby, they'll take all your gross receipts for the year, make you pay tax on it. And all the money that you invested in, let's say, kennels or dog food or medicine, all those expenses, they'll be considered non-deductible. This is especially important if you want to make sure to minimize your tax liability that you're going to be considered a trade or business designation versus a hobby designation. So how do you avoid those hobby loss rules? Number one way is make money. So if you're showing profits on your Schedule C, it's not losses year over year. You might have a loss a year or two. But generally speaking, you're making money every year. You're showing taxable income. That's going to get you outside of those hobby loss rules. Also, you want to legitimize that business. The best way to do so is create a separate books and records. You could do so by getting a bookkeeper, maybe keeping track of your expenses in Excel, maybe getting a computerized program such as Quicken or QuickBooks to keep track of all those expenses. A lot of times now they have different apps that automate the whole process, especially if you have a separate business bank account, you hook that up with an online software like QuickBooks Online. All those transactions can flow through oftentimes categorize it into different sections. So you almost have an automated bookkeeping process. As your business grows and gets bigger, you might have to hire a bookkeeper. But for the most part, most small business owners should be able to handle their own books and records. You just want to make sure you're doing it on an ongoing basis, either weekly or monthly, just to make sure you're keeping up to date with those books and records. The best way to do that is by making sure everything is going through one bank account. You could have a separate business bank account and a personal bank account. And after the end of the year or on a monthly basis, you could transfer funds to your personal account to pay for certain, you know, if you have to pay for housing, you have to pay for your food, life gets expensive. You have to take money out of your business and give it to yourself. But you want to make sure that all your personal expenses, all your business expenses are separate. So when you have a separate business bank account, you can always have bank accounts. You can look through, you can see all the expenses. It's clearly that that's separated, that all the income and all the deductions associated with that account are for business purposes only. In the case of an IRS audit, IRS agents are definitely going to look for that. If it's commingled with a personal account, it doesn't mean that those deductions are non-deductible. It just means that you're going to have a harder time substantiating between what's a personal expense versus what's a business expense. And then lastly, creating a legal entity often helps that case that it's not a hobby, that it's actually a trader business. 
That's why it's such a big stress that people want to set up LLCs or maybe create an S-Corp just to legitimize the business a little more to avoid those hobby loss rules altogether. But generally, if you're making money, you're reporting on Schedule C, you shouldn't have an issue with this. You should be able to deduct all of those expenses. So speaking about common deductions and expenses, generally, their expenses, a lot of people ask, what can I deduct? What can I expense? There's no list in the IRS code exactly word for word. You know, you could deduct vet bills, you could deduct equipment, transportation costs. There's no list that you're going to find anywhere out there in terms of the actual code, the legislation that has been passed. All you'll find is that there's this sentence. It's there shall be allowed as a deduction all ordinary and necessary expenses paid or incurred during the taxable year in carrying on a trade or business. So what's ordinary and necessary will be determinate on the type of business you're performing. So if you're doing, let's say, consulting services versus you're doing landscaping services or your dog breeder, you're going to have different expenses associated with each business. So for example, if you're someone who entertains clients a lot, you might have a higher amount of deductions for meals expense versus if you're someone who's a landscaper and your meals expense is pretty high, the IRS is probably going to look into that and say, why are you entertaining so much and spending all this money on meals and other expenses? There are certain expenses that are considered special expenses where they have certain limitations. So for example, any entertainment expense is going to be disallowed. You're not going to be able to deduct those expenses. Any meals that you purchase, whether for your workers or whether for clients, those are going to be considered 50% deductible. Any meals that you buy for, of course, dogs, the dog food, that's going to be 100% deductible. But any meals for 2022 and going forward, those generally are going to be 50% deductible. Also, there's other deductions that are limited based on your personal use. So for example, if you're using home office or a personal vehicle, those will be limited based on the amount that's attributable to your trade or business. And anything that's related to personal purposes will be non-deductible. So common expenses for dog breeders are going to be your equipment. If you set up kennels, if you have any structures that you built outside of your home, all of those may be deductible expenses. You also have your vet bills. You might have transportation costs. You might have food bills. Anything that is necessary and ordinary for that business, which is a pretty big list if you think about it, those are going to be your deductible expenses that you can use to offset that income that you're receiving every year. Specifically, one question that we got in was on breeding stock. So how do you treat, let's say you have a dog or an animal in general, there's a lot of different fields out there, especially in farming. You might have cows, you might have goats, sheep. When it comes to breeding stock in general, any livestock that's held for breeding is considered a business asset. It's not considered an expense. What this means is that you can't expense that item. You have to actually capitalize it and depreciate it over time. However, there's two important things to note in the code, especially for having that first year expense. You have your section 179 and you have your bonus depreciation. What these two code sections allow you to do is write off the expense of those business assets. So if it's breeding stock or if it's equipment or if it's certain improvements, generally those items you can take a full expense in the first year using section 179 or bonus depreciation. Just quickly, the two main differences between those two sections, 179 cannot create a loss. 
So if you're in a loss position for the year, you can't take additional deductions to increase that loss. Also for bonus depreciation, you can generate a loss, but going forward, bonus depreciation is going to start to phase out. So for 2022, it's 100%. For 2023, it's only 80%. And then it goes 60, 40, and it keeps going down until eventually it phases out altogether. So that's an important distinction to note. If you are making money in your business, you are generating income, you want to buy some equipment, you can use 179 and write off that expense. If you're in a loss position, unfortunately, it's going to be harder and harder to take that bonus depreciation or expense those items in the first year to create a larger loss. Next, we have a home office deduction. Oftentimes, especially solo practitioners who work from home, they might have a home office. The question is, can they write off some home office deductions? Can they take a portion of their home and expense it or take some kind of deduction associated with that space? The answer is that it must be exclusively used on a regular basis as your principal place of business. So you can't have another office space outside your home. It must be a place that you're performing all your most important business activities. And it's where you spend most of your business activity time. So if you're someone who is online all the time, you're, let's say, consulting, or you're doing marketing online, you spend a lot of time in your home office, you work primarily out of that home office, you'll be able to take a deduction based on the either square footage or the actual cost of that home office. So there's two general methods when it comes to taking a home office deduction. First up, you have your regular method. This is the exact cost associated with that space. Best way to think about this is if you have a house, let's say it's 2,000 square feet, you have a small portion of that house, let's say 200 square feet, a small room that you use as a home office, that's going to be considered 10% of your total home. So 10% of those expenses associated with that home, you can deduct for business purposes, whether that's mortgage interest or utilities or certain expenses like internet, all of those expenses, whatever proration amount based on the size of that home office to the entire home, you're going to be able to take as a business deduction. Also, if you have any expenses associated with that specific office, so for example, if you put new carpets, if you painted, you put new windows, or you made any renovations to that home office, as long as it's being used exclusively and on a regular basis as your principal place of business, you can take those deductions. If you just have a table in, let's say, a den or a family room that you have a laptop, and you do a lot of work there, and it's used for both business and personal purposes, uh, unfortunately, you will not be able to take any home office deduction. It has to be a separate room. It has to be solely for business purposes. It can't be co-mingled with business and personal purposes. I know a lot of people now are working from home. They have more flexibility. Oftentimes, they're using different spaces within their home as a home office. But generally speaking, whatever office you might have, whether it actually has walls or if you set up a barrier, or if it's just a corner that you're using with a table, you want to make sure that that specific place is principally used for business purposes. Next up, we have the simplified method. It's an easy way of taking expenses. So if you don't want to go through and itemize all the expenses associated with your home or specific expenses associated with that home office, you can do what's called a simplified method of taking a home office deduction it's $5 per square foot. There is an overall limit, but it's an easy way of saying, all right, my home office is 200 square feet times $5. That's going to be what your home office is for the year. The only thing with the simplified method is you can generate a loss. 
if you do have a loss for the taxable years, those expenses will not carry forward and they cannot be deducted. So generally, if you're making money, you don't want to go through the headache of going through all of those individual items. You can go and take that simplified method, take a deduction. And oftentimes the IRS is not going to fight you on that. They're going to take your word for it that that is the square footage of your home. That's the deduction you're going to take. Versus the regular method, they will go through line by line, looking at all those costs that you're deducting, and they might question them. What about separate structures? Let's say, for example, you have a kennel, or let's say, for example, you have a separate structure outside of your home. Can you take a deduction for those items? So any separate structure, which is not attached to your dwelling or your residence that's used in connection for a trade or business, you will be able to take a deduction for those expenses. So if you're building out kennels, if you're building different structures outside of your homes, generally they might be considered business assets. So you have to capitalize them. You have to take depreciation. But if you have that 179 or bonus depreciation, they should be able to take that immediate expense, uh, deduct those in the current year. If the structure is in your primary residence, it's going to be limited to the amount of income you have for the year. So again, these expenses cannot generate a loss. What I mean by that is that if you have other forms of income, let's say, for example, you have a W-2, you're making $100,000 a year, but you also have this business and that business is generating, let's say, a $10,000 loss for the year, that $10,000 may not be able to be offset by your W-2 wages. So instead of paying tax on $90,000, you are having to pay tax on $100,000. So if that structure or that separate kennel is generating losses for that business, in a sense, they get added back and you can only net to zero in a sense on that Schedule C. So that's important, especially in timing towards the end of the year, if you're making improvements, if you purchase equipment, you want to make sure that you're timing it right so that you're able to take those deductions offset it against other types of income. I also see a lot of questions about business use of vehicle. What are those deductions that you can take, especially if you're doing a lot of transportation, let's say you're driving and doing a lot of business back and forth, there's two methods in order to take business expenses if you're using a vehicle. It's either the standard mileage rate, which is going to be for 2022, 62.5 cents per mile. That's going to be a set deduction. So if you drove 100 miles, 200 miles, you take the number of miles multiplied by 62.5 cents. That's going to be your allowable deduction for that year. This is a simple method that can be used, especially if you just keep a log, you track all your business miles. There's often apps you can download. Any trip that you have that's a business app, a business trip, you can open up the application, set your GPS, it'll track all your mileage and log your miles for the year. So you'll have that log at the end of the year, you could give it to your accountant or you can use it to file your taxes and that will give you your deduction for your vehicles. What that means is that you're not able to individually deduct certain items. So for example, gas, oil, repairs, tires, insurance, all of that stuff. But you will get a standard rate just for all of your vehicle use. It's a lot easier if you don't want to keep track of all those records. All you have to do is keep track of your miles. For the actual expense method, you have to go through all of those invoices. You have to keep track of all of those records. You have to keep books and records when it comes to your actual expenses. And not only that, you have to proportion out those expenses between your total miles you drove for business versus your total miles that you drove for personal purposes 
or maybe commuting purposes. So a good example, let's say you have a family car that you use for vacations, you use to drive to pick up your kids, or you drive to go to your nine to five. All of those miles would be considered personal. And then anything you use for your specific business, whether it's driving to pick up certain supplies or tools, or driving to different job sites, or maybe transporting different items for your business, those are going to be considered your business miles. Whatever that proportion is, that's the percentage that you're going to be able to take as a business expense. So for example, if you use it for personal expenses, half of the time business expenses, the other half of the time, 50% of those expenses will be deductible for the year. So in terms of gas, half your gas will be deductible. If you buy new tires, half of the tires will be deductible. If you pay insurance on a monthly basis, half that insurance will be deductible. And then as you go year over year, if those amounts change, let's say you're driving more for business, you're going to have more percentage of business expenses versus if you're driving more for personal purposes, you're going to have more personal portion of those expenses, which are non-deductible. And in terms of business use of vehicle, when you're taking depreciation, that has separate rules in terms of how much of that actual vehicle you can write off. So if you're thinking of buying a new vehicle or having a vehicle exclusively used for your business and you want to write off those amounts from your total income, there are some limitations when it comes to all vehicles in general, but specifically vehicles that are less than 6,000 pounds. So depreciation on a car generally is limited to 19,200 for any vehicle less than 6,000 when you're using those first year expensing. So if you're using 179 bonus depreciation, and then for 179 purposes, even if you have a vehicle more than 6,000 pounds, let's say you're buying an SUV, that will be limited to 27,000. And in order to take depreciation on those vehicles, you have to use that vehicle more than 50% or the predominant use of that vehicle has to be for business purposes. So if you have a vehicle that you're using for both personal purposes and business purposes, you want to make sure that that mileage every year is more than 50% business. Otherwise, you could have some recapture, you could have some issues, the IRS might come back and limit some of that depreciation. So generally speaking, if you do have a vehicle that you're using for both business and personal purposes, and you want to put it in your business, you have to make sure that using it predominantly or more than 50% for business purposes. If you use it less than 50% for business purposes, you can still claim depreciation, but that depreciation will not be eligible for first-year bonus depreciation, will not be eligible for 179 expense. You have to use a straight-line depreciation method over five or seven years, and that depreciation is going to be limited to the amount of the actual business percentage that you're using. So if it's 20% business, you're going to take the cost of that vehicle, 20% of that, and write it off over the course of, let's say, five years. And I believe we're close to our last general comments on auto protection. Taxes in general can be difficult, especially when you're dealing with the IRS or fears that you might get audited by the IRS. The best thing that you can do is make sure to keep clean books and records. That means having separate books and records for your business, whether it's in QuickBooks or Excel or other forms of a ledger. Also, don't mix your business and personal expenses. So if you have a business bank account, make sure it stays business. If you want to pay for certain personal expenses, just write yourself a check, deposit it in your personal bank account, and then make those expenses from your personal bank account. Also, if you don't feel comfortable filing your own taxes, 
that's fine. You can get a CPA. There's a lot of qualified CPAs and EAs out there that can help you file your taxes. And also when it comes to Schedule C, there's certain red flags that will create an audit in a lot of cases. Mostly it's going to be your vehicle expenses, your home office expenses. And if you're taking overall losses year over year, the IRS is going to come in and say, this is probably a hobby. They're going to kick in those hobby loss rules and limit some of those deductions. Thank you so much for that presentation. That was an awesome amount of information that I think is super helpful to everyone joining us. So we did have one question I just want to call out and I can actually answer this one surprisingly. Someone asked what are considered independent contractors in the dog world. So that would be something like whelpers, anyone coming to help you whelp your litter. So just wanted to call that one out. And then we got another really great question. Since there's a long lead time to get a dog breeding business going due to getting the dog old enough to breed, doing all the health testing, how does that work for deductions? The expenses will precede any income by a year or two. Yep. So if your business has not started yet and you're still in the startup phase, generally a lot of those costs are going to be considered startup costs and therefore you have to capitalize. And then once your business starts getting up and running, those expenses will be amortized over 15 years. Now, depending on how much your actual startup costs you have, you could take additional startup costs in the first year. If you get over a certain threshold, it has to be over 15 years. But generally speaking, any startup costs that you have for your business is going to be capitalized. You can't take that expense in that first year. And then once your business is up and running or in the IRS's eyes, once you're able to function as for your business purpose, so if your business purpose is breeding, selling dogs, you're able to start taking in revenue. That's when your business starts. And all those expenses prior to that start date, that's what's going to be amortized over 15 years. Awesome. And then kind of in a similar vein, when a new dog is purchased to add to the program, so I guess in this case, an asset, how is the purchase price deducted as an expense? Yep. So a similar concept, it's going to be considered a business asset. So it's going to be part of what's called a fixed asset ledger. You're going to put it on your tax return as a capital asset and depreciate it over its useful life. The IRS has different codes or different lives for assets. Generally speaking, it will probably be between five to seven years that you can write that expense off on your tax return. But remember, you do have those options of 179 or bonus depreciation where you can accelerate those expenses and take a lot of that expense in the first year. Awesome. And then I really wanted to touch on this one because I think it applies to majority of people here. How should we handle sales taxes if we're selling dogs to a buyer in another state? Yeah, so that one I probably can't answer because my specialty is in state and local tax. But if you do have sales tax questions, definitely reach out to a professional that is more knowledgeable. The rules are different state to state. So some mm -hmm. transactions might be taxable in a specific state versus some might not be taxable in another state. There's also thresholds based on which states you're working out of. So you might have certain states that you're not going to meet that sales tax withholding requirement unless you get about $10,000 of transactions versus in other states, it could be as little as any transactions will be subject to that sales tax reporting. So definitely reach out to a sales tax professional and if you're having questions on those specific areas. Awesome. And then 
There was a question about stud fees from a third party being considered independent contractors. So for your context, that is when someone's purchasing breeding stock for their program. So would those fees be considered independent contractors, possibly? So this is if you're buying a dog for breeding specifically? Exactly. And you're paying a fee for it. Yeah. So most likely it wouldn't be independent contractors. If you're buying an asset or a vehicle or you're buying certain equipment from somebody, you're buying goods that's not going to be considered an independent contractor. An independent contractor is anyone who works for you, who performs services for you. So if you're hiring someone to mow your lawns or you're hiring someone to perform work for you in a specific area of your business, those are going to be considered independent contractors. If you go out to anywhere, let's say Home Depot, and you purchase a bunch of stuff, that's not an independent contractor. So that wraps up this week's episode of The Good Dog Pod. We hope you learned a lot from this episode and that it'll be a helpful resource for you as you begin to navigate through tax season. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of The Good Dog Pod, and we'll see you right back here on January 31st for our next episode. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.